0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. When I got in the car last week after church gathering, my wife had a reflection. And that reflection sent me back to the Bible and... It's how I want to open up today. The question was, what does it mean that this future one, who is Emmanuel, God with us, is counselor? What does it mean that he's the wonderful counselor? And my wife had been reading in Isaiah, she's been in Isaiah for a couple months now, and she, she was seeing um, a potential broader use of counselor and honestly I hadn't taken the time to punch it into my concordance so um, this morning I did and following up on some of the thoughts she was having and, and if you were to ask Isaiah what does it mean that that this one who will be born will be wonderful counselor, operating like God is a counselor, it's bigger than what we might think. The counsel of God is right here. It's about His big decree. That is His counsel. Here we see it in Isaiah 14. The related word that we see in Isaiah 9.6 that he'll be wonderful counselor here it is three times translated as purposed the Lord of hosts has sworn as I have planned so shall it be and as I have purposed so it shall stand as I have counseled He he is issuing forth guidance and the world is obeying exactly as he intends it to go This is is God's massive sovereignty is bound up in his, His being a counselor. And the call of those who are underneath His counsel, often when we don't even understand why He's counseling the way He is, is to stand in awe and to trust. Look at how it's worded. The Lord of hosts has sworn, I have as I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my, hand, in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. His yoke shall depart from them, his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? That is the counsel of our God. It's His, his decree. And with that decree comes, comes everything. All things from His hand, from Him, through Him, to Him, including the things that we can't understand. When things get very shadowy, very hard, and we're trying to look and we can't make out, what's in front of us why it's happening this way and we begin to cry out why me or, or why her why this hard and why is it taking this long and we don't find answers that is, that is the counsel of God and when we're faced with the counsel of God we have a decision to make whether we will become despairing or whether we will trust and fear this big God It also has to do with His guiding, wise hand. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel, excellent in wisdom. So this is related to His decree. He's orchestrating all things well. Whom did He consult when He made the world? Who made God understand? No one did he consult? What should I do? Because he's the one the—he's the only one who gives consultation. He's issuing all things. And the call is that we would be a people who even when we don't understand why God's doing it the way he's doing it, would find our hearts saying, God, you are in charge. For me, right now, it's like I'm trying to shepherd wind, but I'm going to trust you as the good shepherd who is working all things and who will Make everything right. Who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge? Nobody counseled him. And this is the text that Paul cites in Romans chapter 11. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He should be repaid for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. But when I look, there is no one among these. There is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. This language of counsel is related to the kind of counsel that we think about, guiding others wisely. But it's the very essence of what God does in His world. Everything being upheld purposefully as He counsels it well. May God help our hearts be those who humble ourselves under the wonderful, miraculous, powerful Counselor. Pella, is anything too Pella difficult, wonderful, miraculous, mighty, impossible? No, no. And that is what's tied to his counsel, and it's often beyond us. And yet, knowing that that big God is for us and not against us, we rest in our smallness, in our inability, trusting his ability, and that through Jesus he's for us. So I thank my wife for helping me see. Jason? Yes. One quick question. So, well, person Isaiah forty fourteen, 14 refers of justice. Is there any sense of the word counselor referring to the justice type of counselor in you know, the justice system, the attorney, the one who law, 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 law the law? You know, I don't know. I'm just curious. Is that completely unconnected? Uh, I. I didn't see that in Isaiah. And. It's worth it's worth a look, and you could plug it in. You can. There's three words that are very related: two nouns and a verb, and that's what I plugged in this morning. And um, the yeah, I didn't didn't build that connection. All right, Isaiah 11, that's where we are today. You'll recall that we're not camping on every passage in Isaiah. Instead, we're going to some messianic high points in this book, and this is one of the great ones. Already, I think two weeks ago, it was read as an Advent reading in preparation for celebration, and... We're going to look at it today. Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord." And he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. That's all it's going to take. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist, faithfulness the belt of His loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall, shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy, and all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Father, open up your word now. Through Jesus we pray. We need to hear, and you are the supply. Amen. All right, I see two parts of this passage. You can see the break where there is a focus on the person in verses 1 through 5, this spirit empowered king, and then there's a focus on the impact that his reign will have on the rest of the earth in verses 6 through 9. Isaiah promises a spirit empowered king, and he describes the universal impact of his reign. Now, to get up from where we left off in chapter 9 last week, which Pastor Jason apparently is going to preach on next week, to get to this point, we see a story that we've already become familiar with rekindled over and over again. You'll recall that Isaiah's mission is is a mission of judgment. Keep listening, but don't hear. Keep looking, but don't see. Lest you hear with your ears and see with your eyes and turn and be healed. How long do I have to bring this kind of judgment against the people who've been hard-hearted? How long do I have to keep pushing them further in toward darkness and death? And God says... Until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people. And the land is desolate and waste and the Lord removes people from far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Judgment will come on the land. And then there will be a second burning. Destruction, then burning, until all that's left is a stump. And the holy seed, the holy offspring, is its stump. Now, we already saw this played out in the book. Now between chapter 9, 8, and where we're at in chapter 11, we see this happen again. So during the days of Isaiah, there is a northern kingdom, Israel, and a southern kingdom, Judah, and God declares that Israel in Isaiah's lifetime is going to be no more, and that Judah will soon follow thereafter. And then the judgment of God will spread out, not only on them, but on the rest of the earth. So we read in Isaiah 9, 13 and 14. We're just going to catch up here. Follow along with me as we look at these summary verses. The people did not turn to him who struck them. That's Israel in the north. Nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off Israel from head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. A great king will win a battle in a single day. And this image of the day of the Lord is something that's picked up and carried on so that there's all these mini day of the Lord's. And at any moment, the person experiencing the day of the Lord, and this is where we see imagery like the sky gets filled with darkness and the, mount, the, the moon gets turned to blood. For the person who is dying, it's as if you're being decreated. Decreated. Everything started in darkness and then God said, let there be light. The light overcomes the darkness. But what happens for the person who's undergoing the day of the Lord, for whom the wrath of God is being poured out upon them? It's as if they're going backwards in time, moving out of life back into death, back into emptiness, separation from God. But ultimately, all the small day of the Lord's, people go through them and some people live. And so they recognize that what I just tasted or, or rather what, what this other army or, or, the, or the rest of my family just experienced was only a small taste of the power of God that will be unleashed on the whole world. And ultimately, as we've seen in the past, especially last fall, two falls ago when we worked through the book of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord culminates at the cross event, where Jesus, on behalf of those whom He has redeemed, experienced the, the wrath of God upon Himself for all who believe. But for those who don't believe, the day of the Lord is still future, and it will come, and it will happen in a single day. Chapter 10, 1-5. through 5. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, the writers who keep writing oppression, "...to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of My people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may mistake the fatherless their prey." They may make their fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment and in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So God's going to bring judgment on Israel and then if you let your eye turn over to verse 11 shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images what God promises to do for the northern kingdom he will do on Jerusalem as well and what's at stake is a bunch of people who fail to recognize the significance of doing what is right God is pleased when people do what is right and he is not pleased when they do what is wrong. And those who characterize themselves by wrong living will experience the judgment of God unless, unless our faith is in the perfect righteous one, and then his righteousness is counted as ours. Other than that, there is no hope because God's call is be perfect as I am perfect. Image me. That's what you're called to do. To reflect, to represent, to resemble me as an imager of God. And I am righteous all the time. And Isaiah's message was one of judgment. Now we look at verse 12. Look at verse 12 with me of chapter 10. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, then He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. Well, we just saw that in verse 5, that very king was the instrument in the hand of God to bring judgment on His people. And now God will judge him. And it will only be the start of what will be a global war of God bringing judgment on all those who are against Him. But then look down at verse 17. Chapter 10. The light of Israel will will become a fire and His Holy One a flame and it will burn and devour His thorns and briars in one day. We see it again. A single day. The day of the Lord. Now identified with the people of God and this one called the Holy One. The Holy One Is the embodiment of God working justice on earth? And in this book, he'll be identified with the Christ. The glory of his forest, verse 18, and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. So what Isaiah envisioned, how long, God? How long until it all gets burned and then burned again, windled down to a single stump? That imagery is alive and well once again. But then we read in verse 21, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. My friend wrote a book, Jim Hamilton. Some of you may have seen it. God's glory. No. How is it? What's it called? God's glory in salvation through judgment. Here it says, destruction is decreed overflowing with righteousness. In God's book, salvation only comes through judgment. And righteousness will overflow out of this great mess called punishment of sin. And all of this is pictures of of new creation, of life that will spring forth on the other side of burning, on the other side of terror. And when we think of the cross, that's what we have to picture. Terror, wrath, darkness. All the justice of God being poured out on the Son of God so that we might be sons of God. And what comes on the other side of that judgment and burning where people from every tongue and tribe and nation of all the earth from all time are then bound up in the person of the Son. He is experiencing judgment on their behalf and what overflows is a remnant of new creation. Now we come to our text. the promise of the Spirit-empowered king. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, right there we already see imagery that we've seen. In chapter 1, the garden of God was being burned and destroyed. But we saw a promise at the end of the book that he was going to replant his garden. In chapter 4, verse 2, we saw this language, The branch of the Lord will be glorious in that day after judgment. That's a different word for branch than we have here. But that word for branch is then used in Jeremiah and in Zechariah as a title for the Messiah. He will be the branch. And from that branch will sprout the garden of God, a brand new garden of Eden. Everything will start with Him. Chapter 6.13 The fire of God will come. The forest will be chopped, the fire will come, a tenth remain, it'll all be burned, all that will be left is a stump, the holy offspring is its stump. And now we read, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In chapter 53, the great atonement text, where he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities... 53.2 starts out describing who this person is. Who will die on our behalf. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Who is he? He will grow up like a young plant. Now we're going to see this exact word, young plant, show up later in our passage. But you don't see it because the ESV didn't translate it that way. But we're going to see it and it's significant to me. Not only is he, like a new garden, bringing new life where there was only death, it specifically says he has an identity. Who is he? Where does he come from? What's his ancestry? And who's Jesse? Father of David. You remember Isaiah 9, 7. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Who? This one who has four names. He is Emmanuel, God with us, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's His name. One name, four names built into it. Right after that it declares of the increase of His government and of His peace there will be no end on the throne of David. That's the throne He will sit upon. The throne that will last forever. Because though He die, He has risen, conquered that death, and His throne is his forever it's it's that one that we're talking about I think when he says there will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse it may even be that the reason they mention Jesse here is to take us back beyond the present day of David because the kings that were in Isaiah's day in the line of David were not worth following So I'm just going to remove you for a second from the present situation to remind you of the promises of God. Jesse. Here's Ezekiel. And in Jesus' Bible, I think that the book of Ezekiel, even though it comes after Isaiah, was before Isaiah. In Jesus' Bible, in the way that the books were ordered. So coming to this point, we would have already read this. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. And Ezekiel's writing way after the first David died. But you'll recall that God had promised David that he would have an eternal throne, that he would have a son whom God would call his own son. And David remembered those promises, says Peter in Acts chapter 2. He remembered them and then predicted the coming of the Messiah. So we move on. This this one who has new creational life built in him, this one who has a promissory ancestry, is now identified with the living God once again. He indeed is the Emmanuel. The Spirit of the Lord will rest Upon Him, we're told. What does this mean? Well, we see this exact, the Spirit rested is linked in other texts in the Old Testament. So here's one. The Lord came down in the cloud, so it's the glory presence of God is bound up in His Spirit. And that glory cloud then... Out of that, he spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit, the same spirit of the God of the glory cloud, rested on them, they prophesied. Something happened. They were were filled with power, in this instance, to prophesy. But they didn't do it forever. They didn't keep on doing it. Now, two remain in the camp, one Eldad, the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out of the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. What happens when the Spirit shows up in this way and rests on someone, I think it identifies a work of God in power. It's associated then with the person. The Spirit upon whom the Spirit rests, the person upon whom the Spirit rests, is endowed with power. And then we specifically have detailed in our text the type of spirit, or rather the character qualities that this, or activities that this spirit will work. It's a spirit of wisdom and understanding. This is exactly what God promises King Solomon that he will give him. Those two words, wisdom and understanding, because you didn't ask for riches... I'll give you riches and wisdom and understanding. That's what he wanted. That's what God grants him. It's a specific ability, it seems, with respect to rule. Oh, to be able to image our God in such a way that when we need wisdom and when we need understanding, it's there. And this one will have it in full measure. Not only that, counsel and might. We already assessed counsel in the book at the beginning of class. But in in that text of Isaiah 9, 6 where he's called Wonderful Counselor, he's also called Mighty God. And here they're brought together and bound up with this person again. With counsel and with might. So there's... There's a sense in which he will be able to plan or or understand or decree and it will happen. And he will have what it takes to make it happen. And then he has knowledge and fear. We have to fly through these things. Proverbs, Proverbs 2, verse 5, we read this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek this wisdom like silver and search for it with hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, Solomon in Proverbs is the It says at the beginning, he is the son of David. And in chapter 4 of Proverbs, he tells us that the very wisdom that he's passing on to his kids is the wisdom that he learned from his father. David is the embodiment of wisdom. He passed it on to his son, and now his son is passing it on to his son, but all in a book that's designed to train up future noblemen this is the son of the king in the line of David. And as we read the book of Proverbs, what we're supposed to see is that the very sons that are being instructed in the book of Proverbs, none of them line up with the, wise, with the wisdom that the book portrays. But it, it displays hope for the future son of David who will line up perfectly. Pursuing this wisdom and then embodying in himself the fear of the Lord, understanding the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. With Him is knowledge. And as we're going to see at the end of, in verse 9, it is that knowledge that when He reigns, will characterize the entire world. All who have identified with Him will enjoy that same knowledge. His delight, it says in verse 3, will be in the fear of God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And it will be His joy. Even as I was sitting in the service today, I I had this awakening of, of fear. Fear because this text, as we're going to see, speaks of a king who will come Who knows all. He has the knowledge of God. And that means he knows my sin. He knows your sin. And we can't hide it from him. He knows the thoughts and the intents of our heart completely. We may hide it even from our spouse, but we can't hide it from Him. Oh, that we would have a fear of our God. I will make an everlasting covenant with you so that I will not turn from you. I will put the fear of me in your hearts so that you will never turn from me. Jeremiah, 30, Jeremiah 32, 40. That fear of God is to characterize... Every believer who's part of the new covenant. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that God working in this one. Worked his good pleasure perfectly. Without resistance. Because this one by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, delighted in the fear of the Lord. This is just, just anticipating the life we see laid out in the Gospels. As we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the life of Jesus, we see a person who feared his God and he confronted many who did not. May the fear of the Lord grip us, keeping us from sin, moving us to deeper levels of humility and repentance. This Spirit-empowered life, the rest of the book says, is exactly, I mean, it's bound up. It just unpacks for us. This is who the Messiah was. Behold my servant, whom I... Uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the text Jesus quotes to kick off his ministry when he's in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of the vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To comfort all who mourn. Jesus is here to comfort all who mourn. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to do what? To rest. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, says Isaiah. And Matthew says, Yes, this is my beloved Son, the voice declares, with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, this spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord is not just for him. What does he say? I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He dwells with you and He told the disciples He will be in you. This this is an example of how all of a sudden the church who's identified in Jesus takes on the character qualities of Jesus. The same Spirit that empowered Him is now in us. And so we we can plead justly in light of the blood of the cross, God, give me the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might. Give me the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Work it in me. It was purchased for us. Help me delight in this kind of living. We've seen his new creational life and ancestry, his power source and its result, and now we see in verses, the rest of, chap, of verse 3 and through verse 5 how he lived. What was his ethic? It says, He shall not judge by what he see, what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, not this, but this, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Back in chapter 9, this is how he was described as well. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. This king on the throne of David will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. This is one of the verses that... We'll see it in just a minute. But it was... um, Oh God, I'm such a sinner. That's what I was feeling in the service today. I'm such a sinner. And I'm fearing you right now. And then I found great rest. Great rest in in knowing that before Jesus started working justice among others, God was working justice through Him for me. A bruised reed He will not break. A smoldering wick He will not snuff out. If you feel helpless, if you feel hopeless, if you feel empty... God says that's right where I want you to be because in your helpless neediness I can be shown as the need supplier. I will be shown great and you will be helped and that's how I want it to be. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not blow out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until He establishes justice on earth. In His teaching, the islands will put their hope. So here's three texts that came to my mind as I sat in the service today. Number one, out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By His knowledge shall the righteous one. The righteous one is aware when he undergoes the the judgment of God and God is pleased to crush him if he will but become a guilt offering for sin. Then, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see. He's just been an offering. He's dead and now he's raised and he sees his own offspring. He sees and is satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one aware fully of what he was doing. The righteous one, my servant, makes many to be accounted righteous. He's the righteous one. Pastor Jason mentioned uh, 1, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. No, that's not the right. 1 Timothy 3.16, where the resurrection, in the resurrection, Jesus was justified. It it proved that he was indeed not wicked and did not die for his own sins. And now his righteousness can become ours. He makes many to be accounted righteous. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is just to forgive us our sins. He would be unjust to not forgive us. And that's our plea for those who are living in darkness. That they would but confess. And God can work that. He worked it in us. He can work it in them. God, make it happen. Overcome the resistance. People will continue to resist the Spirit until the Spirit overcomes that resistance and says, no more. You are mine. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make Him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing things, these things to you so that you will not sin. But if any of you do, does sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. His righteousness overcoming our guilt. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. For those that do not find Jesus as the righteous one, the wrath will be poured out on them. We read that next. Not only will He work justice, it says, He shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. All he has to do is speak and his words are like a sword. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. The very words that are upholding all things right now will one day speak judgment on all who have not treasured the Son. But while there is still breath, there's the possibility for mercy. From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So this is so serious. Sin is so serious. And yet mercy is so real. And we rest in that. Righteousness shall be the belt of His waist and faithfulness the belt of His loins. This is the quality of His judgment. It's it's one of righteousness and faithfulness. Everything He does will be right And he will be faithful to every bit of his word. And therefore those who are in Christ need not fear. And those who are in Christ should warn those who are not. Because he will be faithful not only to bless, he will be faithful to curse. All of this bound up in the sun. So as Isaiah is speaking this, I just envision a people who are hearing this. Very few of them responding the way that they should. But there are some, some who would hear this and their hearts would be quickened. And the response should be, I want to be on your side and not against you. God help me. God help me. Overcome my wickedness. Move me. Apply to me what I cannot apply to myself. Work righteousness for me in this righteous one. What's beautiful? What's beautiful is that this isn't the only text. A whole bunch of texts here are used in Isaiah that that Paul's going to build upon in Ephesians chapter 6. And he's going to just apply them to us. Righteousness, the belt of His waist. Faithfulness, the belt of His loins. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of Him who brings good news. Beautiful feet identified with peace. The Lord put righteousness on as a breastplate. A helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. All of this, it's it's portrayed like armor. And it identifies the very qualities of the wearer. He is righteous. He is filled with peace. He has a belt of truth. He has a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness. It identifies the qualities of the wearer. And then Paul declares, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Who is the Lord? Him. Be strong in the Lord. That is, be identified with Him. Get in to him in your offspring will all the families of the earth be blessed it's only in him full identification with jesus and all of a sudden in him we find strength be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened On the belt of truth, belt of faithfulness, that's the same term. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, your shoes for your feet. Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. In Isaiah, these are all images of the Messiah. This is His armor. But now His righteousness becomes our righteousness. We stand clothed with faith. A sword of the Spirit in our hands, a helmet of salvation, it characterizes us. This is the qualities of who we are in Him. And so take comfort and hope in that. Those in Christ bear his armor. I really wanted to get to the last part of this, but I can't. So we're going to pick it up when I get home. I mean, when we come back after New Year's. Um, but I'll whet your appetite. Let your eye move down. The question of timing is raised. And the question of nature In Isaiah 11, what does it tell us is going to be the impact of this spirit-empowered king's reign? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. A little child shall lead them. Now most people who just read this just think, Oh look, even the littlest child will be safe. I don't think that's the case anymore. In this book, we've already heard about a child. He'll be born of a virgin. Unto you this day is born a child. And he will lead them. Those that must once be were wild will no longer be wild. They'll be tamed. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together we've moved from cohabitation to no predation no predatory activity and then it says the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra now if you write in your Bible you could just circle nursing child and say in the margin Isaiah 53 2 it's the only other time the word shows up in the book This is the same word for the tender shoot. The tender shoot that will grow up out of the stump. Yes, it's a picture of weakness, but it's weakness in relation to the Messiah. He's just a child, and yet he has power over all absolute power. And where will he play? Where will he stretch out his hand? Over the very den of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. The ESV translates it as future when it says the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. But in the Hebrew text, it's actually has put his hand on on the adder's den, or stretched his hand over the adder's den. I think it's an image of the curse being overcome by not any child, the one single child, overcoming the serpent and all that is evil. They shall not destroy or hurt in all my holy mountain because... And here, again, the ESV translates it as future, but I would translate it as past. Why? Because in this day, all the earth has become full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Nature and timing. We'll pick this up after the break. And carry this on all the way to chapter 12, verse 6. That's where we're headed. Let me pray. Father in heaven, how much we need this king. If we were not able to confess our sins, and if you were not able to justly forgive us in light of the righteous one, we wouldn't want him to come, but it wouldn't change the reality. But you have provided a way because he took our pardon the righteous one making many righteous we rest today knowing that you are just to forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and our hope is in you who alone overcomes the curse who even as a child held all authority I pray that You'd work in us and work for us for Your glory this Christmas. Whatever journey we are going on, be near. Whether it is times of merriment or times of misery, be near. You died that we might have life abundantly. So let us taste it now, even as we hope for more. Through Jesus we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason Deroshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Daroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.